Psalm 96 is a psalm, uh, it's celebrating God's kingship over creation and, uh, and kind of walking through uh, how we as the people of God are to respond to God's kingship, right? God rules over all. He's sovereign. He will judge the world in accordance with his goodness and greatness. And then it makes it clear how we are to respond by, by loving him and by, by worshiping him. We don't know who wrote Psalm 96. It wasn't, um, there's not like a, a name attributed to it on the psalm itself. Uh, but little bit of a backstory. Psalm 96 is quoted by David uh, in 1 Chronicles 16 when he is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into uh, the, the, the city of Jerusalem. And he's, they're kind of celebrating the return of God and the, the word of God back to the people of God. Um, so 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel 4 Israel's fighting with the Philistines. That's before David's king. They're fighting with the Philistines. The Philistines win, and like a big practice uh, of uh, like uh, warring civilizations in the first century, a lot of a lot of tribes and civilizations saw their military might and power as a function of and a reflection of the god that they worshipped. So, if we beat you in military combat. Uh, it was pretty ruthless and pretty barbaric. You know, we'll take all of your stuff. We will, you know, kill all of the men, take women and children. You know, like it was pretty barbaric, but it was also seen as like our God beat your God. Our God is stronger than your God. We appeased our God more effectively than you appeased your God. And so therefore our God gave us victory over you and your God. That was kind of how everyone uh, saw it. And well, everyone largely except um, Israel, right? The, the, the prevailing notion was, we have our gods, you have your, your gods. Whoever wins, their god is stronger. Israel was the, the lone wolf that was like, we have our god, and that's the only one. No other gods exist, so you guys are just worshiping people that aren't uh, gods. Anyways, 1 Samuel 4, uh, Philistines defeat Israel, take the Ark of the Covenant, which was like the most prized possession that they had. They put it in a temple of their uh, idol, of their false god, and God judges them for it. Um, everyone gets sick. It knocks over, like God overnight knocks over the idols that are in the temple and its head, its head falls off. Um, and, and so then the, the, uh, Philistines are like, we don't, we don't want anything to do with this ark anymore. This thing is like, we're all getting tumors and we're all getting sick. And so, uh, they, they kind of start, they send it from city to city and every city that the ark of the covenant goes to, everyone gets sick. And it's just, a, and they're, eventually they're like, this thing is more trouble than it's worth. They put it on the back of a cart. They attach that cart to two cows and they just hit them. And they're like, walk, just go away. Leave our city. We don't want to know where you went. We don't want to know where the ark is. We're, we're done with this, with this thing. And the cows kind of go. And eventually the ark makes its way to a city called Kiriath-Jerim. That's kind of where the trail goes cold for a while. Um, the, the ark stays there for decades. Fast forward to First Chronicles 13, David is now king, and David's like, let's go get the ark. We know where it is. Let's go get it. Uh, Saul was, Saul was David's predecessor. David's like, Saul was a bad king. Saul didn't go get the ark like he should have. I'm going to be a good king. Let's go get the ark. So David goes, gets the ark, and brings it back. And in 1 Chronicles 16, uh, there's, they're like bringing it back in. There's a big party. Everyone's celebrating Daniel, or, or David is celebrating and dancing and kind of worshiping God. And he sings this song. He sings Psalm 96, quotes it almost word for word for word. It's a big, significant moment in the history of the nation. God is back. God's word is back. 
And David chooses this psalm to mark that moment because this psalm uh, is uh, fitting for such a significant, weighty moment in the history of the people of, of God. So, it might be that David wrote Psalm 96 and he was singing his own song. It might be that someone else wrote Psalm 96 and David was kind of doing a cover song. Um, but either way, David says this song, this psalm is uh, fitting of such a weighty, significant moment because of the weighty, significant, deep truths that this psalm communicates. So, I'm going to read through it, uh, 13 verses, and then we'll pray, and we'll spend some time considering it together. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before the Lord. Strength and beauty are in the Lord's sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Let's pray together. Lord, we await that day when you will return and judge the earth in faithfulness and righteousness. And even as we wait for that day, Lord, we long to be, we aspire to be, and we pray that you would help us to be people who worship you and honor you and ascribe glory to your name because you are worthy and deserving of glory and honor. Lord, we ask your blessing on our time this morning. Please use it to conform us to the likeness of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to break the psalm up to essentially five kind of themes that run through, through it. We're not going to walk through it verse by verse by verse because what we'll see is that there are recurring themes that kind of pop up uh, over and over. And so we're going to cover these five themes and find that by the time we get through all five of them, uh, we will have covered all of the verses in the psalm. But each of them kind of are repeated and kind of uh, placed in different places throughout the, the psalm. So essentially those five themes are going to break down into two instructions for the people of God. So two things we should go home and do. And then three underlying reasons why we should do them. Two things we should do, three reasons why we should do those things. So the first instruction that the psalmist gives the people of God in Psalm 96 is to uh, worship the Lord. Right? So to worship God, to ascribe glory and honor to God. You see that in the first two verses, sing to the Lord a new song. 
Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and, and bless His name. Right? It's the idea of uh, see and, and savor who God is. Let your soul acknowledge that reality and, and respond to it and revel in it and enjoy it. Right? God is, is great. And so uh, the people of God should let their hearts acknowledge and, and be affected by His greatness and rejoice in view of His greatness. Kind of the, the fundamental theme that we see running through this psalm is that, that man is to worship God, his creator. Man was created by God. Man is to worship his creator, his God. That's also the, it's not just the theme of Psalm 96, but it's the theme of, of the Christian life, right? It's the, it's the very thing for which we were created is to worship God. God has existed for all of eternity, stretching back into eternity past, right? If you go uh, back to the beginning of human history and then go further back, millions, billions, trillions of years, God has existed that whole time. And specifically, he's existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this, this Trinitarian community, three persons, one God, one Godhead. They've existed uh, together, interacting with one another, communicating with one another, loving one another, deferring to one another, perfect relationship forever and ever. And what that means is that when God, who himself was in this perfect community of love and joy and self-fulfillment... Right? God didn't need anything from anyone. There's no need that, every need that God had was fulfilled just within himself. God himself met every need that God had. God needed nothing from anyone other than himself. And so what that means is when God created humanity, it wasn't because he was lonely. It wasn't because God needed something that he, he, had a, that he needed humanity to, to meet a need of his. God created humanity... Because, because if we, someone as great as God, someone as glorious as God, someone as beautiful as God, someone as magnificent as God, it's only fitting for someone like that to have his greatness and his glory to be beheld by someone. Right? God didn't create us because he needed us. He created us because his glory is so great and glorious that it was, uh, it, it, it needed to be beheld by someone. And so when a created being who was created by God, who's loved by God and experiences the grace of God and the mercy of God and the provision of God and the unmerited favor of God, when that created being experiences that glorious and beautiful God, when that creature beholds God, the inevitable reaction that comes uh, is worship. Worship is, in, is the inevitable result that happens when a created being sees God for who he really is, realizes who God really is, right? Uh, realizes the profound glory that God has. Worship is what happens as the inevitable result of that. God creates, God loves, God provides, 
creatures behold, creatures enjoy, and then creatures worship. They, they sing to the Lord a new song, right? They um, declare his glory. They feel joy in their hearts. We skip down to verses 7, 8, and 9. Same uh, point in those verses as well. Ascribe to the Lord families of peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. To, the word ascribe means uh, to attribute, right? To like, to, to, to agree with or to say that something is true of, of someone, right? When you, you know, when you say that, I don't know, your favorite food is delicious, you're ascribing the category of deliciousness to that food. When you say that, you know, so-and-so is my favorite athlete or whatever, right? You know, you're a, like Michael Jordan is the best basketball player. When you say that, you're ascribing the characteristic of greatness and, and best to the person of Michael Jordan. So the psalmist is saying, ascribe glory to God. Give, like say that God is glorious. Acknowledge the, the reality of God's glory. Give glory to God. Say that he is glorious right? Ascribe uh, the, the glory and strength, right? God is strong, and so you are to acknowledge and say that God is strong. Bring an offering to God. Tremble before him, right? All, all different ways of saying the same thing, which is to, to worship the Lord. The first question of the Westminster Catechism uh, says, what is the chief end of man, Right? Question number one, kind of what they, what they start with when they teach their kids. This is, you know, is, is what, what, what were you created for? What's the purpose why you exist, right? What, what does God want you to do with your life? What will you be doing for all of eternity? What's the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So, to, to worship God, right? Worship is what happens when a created being beholds God, enjoys God, and then responds by glorifying God and seeking to obey God. That's what worship is. Worship happens um, on an intellectual level, right? Worship is, is, uh, uh, is, you know, worship is more than merely intellectual. It's more than merely cognitive, it's more than something that just happens in your brain, but it's not less than that. So there is an intellectual component to worshiping God. We believe uh, true things about God. We think accurate things about God. We believe God's word. We have an accurate picture in our mind of who God is. Right? Having good theology, reading solid, good books about the character of God is, uh, is, is, worship, is worshiping God. So worship is intellectual. Worship is also emotional, right? So it's not just that you think true things about God. It's also that those true thoughts about God and who he is affect our hearts, warm our hearts, cause our hearts to feel real affections and emotions for God and about God. There are streams within Christianity that that lean toward what I would describe as a shallow emotionalism, right? Uh, a lot of screaming and yelling and whipping people into a frenzy, but they lack deep and meaningful theology. And so uh, we as believers are right to be concerned about that or, or maybe to distance ourselves from that kind of shallow, non-theological emotionalism. And yet, 
We want to be careful not to distance ourselves so far from the unhealthy, uh, shallow uh, emotionalism that we kind of uh, fall our, that we kind of lean into another extreme of uh, stoicism, right? Or, or uh, you know, thinking true things, but but becoming cold and indifferent to them and not caring about them. True worship is not only a matter of the head, but it's also a matter of the heart. We wor- to worship God means that we will love God, appreciate God, enjoy God, have affection in our hearts for God that is real and that is, that is deep. So, worship happens on the intellectual level when we think true things, when we cultivate good theology. It happens on the emotional level when we feel uh, warm affections, religious affections for God. But worship also happens on the volitional level, like the act of the will, what you, what you do. If you have good theology and believe true things about God, and you love God in your heart, and you have affection for God, but you don't obey God, you don't repent of your sin, you don't actively strive to live a life that glorifies God, then you are uh, not worshiping God. Right? What you do externally with your hands, reveals what you feel internally in your heart and what you think internally in your, in your head. Those things all kind of intersect together uh, in the worship of God. Intellect, emotion, will. Head, heart, hands. Which is why uh, in Mark 12, when the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what is the most important commandment of all? He says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Right? Your mind is what you think. Your heart and your soul is what you feel, and your strength is what you do. So intellect, emotion, will, head, heart, hands. So Jesus, so the psalmist in Psalm 96 is saying, your task is to worship God. Intellect, emotion, will. Like your your entire being is to worship God. And then when we skip down to verses 11 and 12, we see that this worship of God that God has called us to uh, is not an individualistic effort that we just do as kind of individual silos. When we worship God, we um, we are merging with the entire created order. We are merging with the cosmos in its pre, in the worship of God that is already taking place there. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar. All that fills it, the field exult, everything in it. Then all the trees shall sing for joy. He's saying that the, the, the end for which man was created is to uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Man was created to worship God and the, the the means, practically what, what, what humanity's worship of God looks like is repentance, faith, trust, obedience, right? Glorifying God and enjoying Him. But all of the world, all of the universe, everything that God created was created to worship God. And, and you know, they don't have personhood, they don't have agency, so their worship looks different than ours. But it's nonetheless still worship, right? The heavens worship God. The sea worships God. The fields and the trees, work, right? When you... When you look at the heavens, when you go outside, dark night, right? You leave the city so there's no uh, light pollution. You can see all these, right? The heavens are in, like, you're supposed to look, God created it this way to where you're supposed to look at the heavens and, and be, right? and Paul, uh, uh, David does this in Psalm 8. You should read that for, for homework, but you're supposed to uh, 
Look at this vast expanse that is the heavens and be reminded of the, the massive, big creation that you're in and be reminded of how small you are. Who, is, who am I that you are mindful of me? It's meant, to, it's meant to feel big and incredible and remind us of how big and incredible God is and to make us feel small, right? That the heavens worship God by, by provoking worship in our hearts. When you look at the earth, right? It's intended, it's designed to, you see colors and variety and beauty and, and diversity. You see animals and plants and you see the water cycle and you see how the, you see, you look at the earth and you see uh, beauty and diversity and uh, intricacy, and it's supposed to make you think of the God who created those things and how beautiful and diverse and intelligent and good he is. You look at the sea and you see this big, vast, scary, uncontainable, uncontrollable, right, uh, void. It, you know, if, you're, if you're swimming in it, or surfing on it, sailing in it, right? You can't fight against it. You can't control it. You have to merge with it. You have to react to it because it is bigger than you. If you try to fight against the ocean, it will win. You will lose. That's supposed to remind us of God and God's bigness and his strength and kind of how scary and dangerous he is, you know, when compared to a small creature like us. The sea worships God. The fields worship God. The tree, all of creation is worshiping God simply by virtue of its it's existing. And as it does so, uh, it's fulfilling the role that God created for it. It's doing what God created for it to do. When we look at, in the book of Revelation, at uh, the, the new heavens and the new earth that we will live in forever and forever, it is, it, he speaks in terms of the earth. It's a world redeemed, a world restored, a, a world that spends eternity worshiping God. There's rivers and trees and, and they're bearing fruit. In Revelation 5, it says, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. So, so human beings and angels and angelic beings, heavenly beings, but also animals and every creature in the earth flying over the earth, in the sea, they will all say to God, blessing and honor and glory and might be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So all of creation worships God, gives honor to God, ascribes glory to God. Psalm 96 is calling us to merge with that. See the worship service that is taking place all around us as as creation worships its creator and and get in line with that and merge with that and worship God as we see going on all around us. That's point one. That's the first like big recurring theme that's running through this psalm. Verses 1, 2, 7, 8, 9, 11, 12, worship the Lord. The next one, the second of two instructions that Psalm 96 gives us as the people of God. The first is to worship the Lord. The second is to declare the glory of the Lord. We see this back up in verses 2 and 3 and following. <coughs> so the first, you know, the first three lines are kind of are inherently vertical. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Sing like, like I am singing and the person I'm singing to is God. 
But then starting in verse 2 and 3 and following, all of a sudden it's, it's horizontal, right? Tell of God's salvation from day to day. That's talking about telling it to other people. Declare the glory of God among the nations. How marvelous His works are among the, the peoples. So you ascribe glory to God vertically, and then you uh, declare the glory of God to other people uh, horizontally. A right response. When we see God in His glory, the appropriate response to the glory of God is this kind of bi-directional, vertical worship and horizontal declaring, proclaiming, interacting, engaging, loving, you know, uh, uh, serving, uh, showing hospitality, horizontal and vertical. You might have heard someone say, I certainly have, um, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I trust Jesus, but my faith, my beliefs, my trust in Jesus is a private matter. It's not something I talk about with other people. I keep it to my, like, you do you, I'll do me. I'll believe what I want to believe. I don't want to broach that subject with anyone else lest I make them uncomfortable. It's my faith. It's my business. I'll keep it to myself. That kind of thinking is utterly foreign to the Bible. The Bible has no category for someone who trusts in Christ and keeps it to himself and kind of has this relationship with God that's entirely private. It's true that the Christian faith is personal. It's rooted in an individual relationship that's between you and God. You turn, like no one else can repent of your sin. No one else can trust in Christ on your behalf. You have to turn from your sin. You have to trust in Jesus. It's a personal thing, but it's not a private thing. It's very much a public thing. It's very much a corporate thing with a horizontal dimension to it, a horizontal dimension that pertains both to believers and to unbelievers, right? This same kind of exhortation of telling of your salvation and declaring the glory of God uh, has, has in, in its, uh, it, it has in view both believers and unbelievers. So how do we tell of our salvation from day to day and declare the glory of God among uh, believing people? It's by being a part of a church. That's what the church is and that's what the church does. Think about, think about for a second, uh, in its most stripped down, simplest, you know, as reduced as you could possibly get it, what is a church? And what does it mean to be a member of a church? And what is a person saying when they become a member of a church? In its simplest form, right? We strip away all the frills. A church is a community of believers that gathers together and every Uh, individual in it professes their faith to the community of believers. Everyone, a church is a group of believers where everyone comes together and everyone effectively says, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I trust in Jesus. Here's how Jesus has changed my life. Here's how, here's my understanding of the gospel. Here's how I came to know Christ. And then the community hears that profession of faith, and the community sees the life that is being lived in the context of that profession of faith, and the community collectively affirms the profession of faith of each individual. It's a bunch of people, all of whom are saying, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, here's my life, I'm an open book for you to see. And the community says, 
given, given what we're hearing from you about your understanding of the gospel and given what we see in your life as best as we can discern, we affirm that your profession of faith is credible. We agree with you that we think that you are a Christian and we think that you should proceed with some semblance of assurance that your faith is genuine. That's what church is. A group of believers who profess their faith to one another and affirm one another's professions of faith and then they gather regularly under the authority of godly, qualified leaders for the preaching of God's word and, and the, the you know, administration of the sacraments. That's what a what a church is in its simplest form. Which is what the psalmist is saying here, right? He's saying, uh, sing to the Lord, but tell of his salvation from day to day. That's what happens when you become a member of a church. You come to the church and you say, I'm telling you of the salvation that I have received from God. I'm telling you I'm a Christian. I'm telling you my understanding of the gospel. And uh, as we live in the context of the church... We have covenant responsibilities, covenant obligations to each other, uh, namely all of the all of the one another passages that we see in the New Testament that I took uh, I kind of consolidated them and distilled them throughout the, the week this week to kind of you know a, a few dozen there there's a bunch more and some of them are repeated but these are all of the uh, or most of or a lot of the commands that we see in the New Testament relating to one another right? Love one another. Be kind to one another. If you want this, you can uh, let me know afterwards. I'll, I'll email this to you. You don't have to write it all down. Love one another. Be kind to one another. Care, to, care for one another. Pray for one another. Be at peace with one another. Be humble toward one another. Bear burdens for one another. Build one another up. Encourage one another. Fellowship with one another. Do good to one another. Honor one another. Instruct one another. Serve one another. Show hospitality to one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. Submit to one another. Dozens of commands like this in the New Testament of how we are to treat our fellow believers, all of which I would argue are expressions of and outworkings of Psalm 96, where it says, tell other people of the salvation that you have received, declare the glory of God to... Because I mean, what, how, what, what, is it, what does it mean when... How do we encourage one another as fellow church members? Speak the gospel to one another, right? As we remind one another of the good news that is in Christ that is inherently encouraging. How do we instruct one another? We speak the gospel to one another. How do we care for one another? We speak the gospel to one another. How do we build each other up? We, right, speaking the gospel to one another is the, the, the primary way in which we obey most of, if not all, of these one another passages. And so Psalm 96 is basically saying... Uh, all of those one another passages in the New Testament do them by declaring the glory of God, proclaiming the glory of God, telling of the salvation that you have received to other believers. So that's how the horizontal component works itself out with respect to believers, right? There's the vertical component, you worship God. There's the horizontal component of declaring the glory of God, proclaiming the glory of God. And with respect to believers, how that works is be a part of a church, be a member of a church, be a faithful member of a church, love and disciple and encourage one another with the good news of the gospel in the church. There's also uh, another component to the horizontal, which is uh, as it relates to unbelievers, 
So what does it look like to tell of your salvation from day to day, declare the glory of God among the nations and His marvelous works among the peoples? How does it look, what does it look like to do that to unbelievers? The answer is uh, evangelism. Share the gospel with them. Hospitality. Invite them into your home. Love your neighbor. Be Christ-like. So, right, so there, there are plenty of Christians who they kind of understand their relationship with God to be exclusively vertical and have no horizontal, horizontal dimension to it at all. Me and God and no one else that's private. But uh, there are some Christians who say, all right, I acknowledge that there's a horizontal component to my faith, but that horizontal component deals strictly and exclusively with believers. Right, so I'll, I, I have a vertical component where I worship God, and I have this horizontal component where uh, I uh, you know, engage with and in, encourage and am encouraged by other believers, but that's it. Right? Uh, outside of me and my church and my Christian, as far as the world is concerned, I want nothing to do with them. I want to withdraw away from them. My posture toward the world is... Uh, adversarial, uh, and, and, and it represents a threat to me and my way of life. And just as the strictly vertical with no horizontal is not biblical, so too the vertical with horizontal only dealing with believers and no unbelievers is also uh, unbiblical. Because the psalmist here has in view not just fellow uh, Israelites and fellow people, uh, members of the nation of Israel, but declare the glory of God among the nations, among the Gentiles, among the peoples, right? Everyone who does not already know God, you should make an effort to proclaim the glory of God to those people as well. So a godly Christian cultivates his relationship with God through worship. He cultivates his relationship with believers uh, in the church, and he cultivates his relationship with unbelievers by getting to know them and being kind to them and listening to them and hearing their story and engaging with them on spiritual things and explaining how Christ has changed your life and explaining to them how Christ can change their life if they turn from their sin and trust in Him like you have done. Right? A faithful believer will engage with unbelievers. He'll, he'll invite them into the compelling community that is the church Right? A, a faithful Christian is going to put the love of God and the grace of God and the kindness of God and the generosity of God and the hospitality of God. He's going to put all of that on display in his relationships with non-believers so that they see him and they experience the heart of Christ through him and they might be drawn to Jesus through their relationship with that follower of Jesus. what it means to declare the glory of God among the nations and tell the nations that the Lord reigns. It means to get to know non-believers, friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, servers in your restaurants that you frequent, people that work at the local establishments that you patronize. Get to know them, invite them into your life, invite them into your home, spend time with them, share meals with them, share the gospel with them. So what the psalmist is calling to do in verse is calling us to do in verses two and, and three. Which might seem intimidating at first. The pro, like the prospect of engaging with the world 
and faithfully and boldly proclaiming the gospel to a world that doesn't believe in Christ is a little intimidating at first. But I don't think it's as hard as we give it credit for. I imagine that I imagine that it's well within reach for every single one of us to share a meal with or share an unhurried interaction where we listen more than we speak with a non-believer between now and Christmas, right? Next 30 days, whatever it is, I would imagine that it's well within reach for us all to have one interaction like that with a non-believer. And if in the context of that interaction, the Lord gives you an opportunity to share Christ with them, great, that's awesome. If he doesn't, that's awesome too, right? Um, right? You can continue to pursue, continue to cultivate the relationship, and continue to look for opportunities to talk about God's glory and God's grace. Sharing the gospel with unbelievers is not difficult. might be intimidating, might be uncomfortable, but it's actually quite simple. It's not difficult. It's, it's fairly simple to tell of God's salvation from day to day to declare the glory of God among the nations, to declare the marvelous works of God among the peoples, and to say among the nations that the Lord reigns and that he will judge the nations with with equity. So, those are the two main themes, the main exhortations that this psalmist is giving us, right? One, worship God vertically. Two, uh, proclaim and declare the glory of God horizontally. And then I want to just real quickly look at three uh, underlying uh, reasons as to why we should do them. The first of them we see in verses 4, 5, and 6, because God is glorious, right? God is great. He's greatly to be praised. He is to be feared, right? All the gods are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before the Lord, and strength and beauty are, right? The, The psalmist is saying, Here's why I want you, here's why I don't feel bad about asking you to worship God or don't feel like I'm asking you to do something that's ridiculous or, or unexpected when I'm telling you to worship God. The reason why I'm telling you to worship God is because God is worthy of worship. God is, right, ascribe glory to God. Why? Because God himself is infinitely glorious. Right? It's not, you know... Right? When I was a kid, you'd go to Radio Shack and buy batteries, and they'd ask for your phone number. They wouldn't sell you your phone number unless you, wait, they wouldn't sell you batteries unless you gave them your phone number. And I, left, I always left thinking, why did they, that's a weird request to make, right? That's a weird, right? You have batteries and you want money. I have money and I want batteries. Should be a pretty easy Pretty easy exchange. But they're always like, no, we want, to, we want your phone number. And I always just think, that's a weird request that doesn't really follow based on the situation that we're in. This is not a, like, for, for the psalmist to say, I want you to worship God and to ascribe glory and honor to God is not a weird request. It's not a non sequitur. It doesn't not follow, right? It, it's, it's a perfectly normal, ordinary request given the situation that we find ourselves in, which is that we are a created being and God is an infinitely glorious, sovereign creator, God and King. God is unimaginably, unspeakably glorious. 
And therefore, it is entirely appropriate for us to worship God and to ascribe glory and honor to His name. So worship God and proclaim the glory of God. Why? One, because God is glorious. Two, because every other God is worthless. You see that in verses 4 and 5, right? Uh, greatest God, greatly reads, he is to, God is to be feared above all other gods. All the other gods of the peoples are worthless idols. God made the heavens. They did not. God is the sovereign king. They are not. Giving your life to anything but God, worshiping anything but God, ascribing glory and honor and fame to anything but God is a foolish endeavor because it doesn't even make any sense. They are worthless. They are of no value. God alone is entired is entitled to our worship. God God alone we owe our worship to God alone. Everything else in the universe besides God might be fun, might be good, might be enjoyable, but it's not worthy of our worship. It will leave us empty and unsatisfied. And God alone is worthy of our worship and will satisfy the people that come to him and that worship him. Now you might say, that's great. Like I, that, one, I don't, that one I don't need because I don't, I don't worship idols. Like I don't have, I don't have like a Baal or an Asherah or an idol in my house that I fall prostrate before and that I, that I worship. So that's not really relevant for me. There's any number of questions that we could kind of ask and kind of think introspectively about our heart and our life and our soul to determine whether or not we are in our hearts uh, ascribing glory and honor and praise to something other than God, whether we are actually worshiping idols in our hearts, whether we know it or not. Questions like, what gets the majority of my time and attention? Is it God and the things of God and the people of God and obeying God and doing what God has called me to do? Or is it video games or movies or, I don't know, online shopping, right? Like, what, what is it that I give my time and attention to? What, what is it that I think more about than anything else? How do I allocate my money and my resources? Do I give generously to the church and advance the work of the gospel? Or do I spend more money than I should on things for myself, comforts, entertainments, luxuries? Right? What, what is it in my life that I love more than anything else? What is it that I would protect and defend most aggressively? What is it that I would uh, react most, um, you know, with, with the most volatility if this thing is threatened or taken away from me. Look at what you give your time and attention and emotion and affection and resources and money to. Because if that's not God, or if that's not something that God has called you to, then it's entirely possible that that is something that you have elevated in your heart. Right? That that has become an idol, that you're, that you're effectively worshiping whether you realize it or not. If you spend more time thinking about pursuing, trying to get, trying to acquire money or power or respect or approval or 
you know, the affirmation of other people. If you spend more time trying to get that than you do trying to honor God, you might be worshiping those. Martin Luther said, Martin Luther in his um, catechism uh, on the, on the um, Ten Commandments, he's talking about and kind of expounding on uh, the, the Ten Commandments. And so the, ten, the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. And then the other ones are, you know, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, you, you know, all, like a, a bunch, of, bunch of behaviors. And Martin Luther said, I think we have, yeah, he said the first commandment that you should love the Lord your God, um, right, and have no other gods before him, the first commandment is the chief commandment. That is the commandment from which all of the others proceed. The first commandment is like a clasp, I think I spelled that wrong, a clasp or a hoop that binds together all of the other commandments. Whenever a man's heart fears or loves and trusts God, he has not only fulfilled the first commandment, because that's what that one is, but he, is, he will also fulfill all of the others. On the other hand, if anyone fears and loves anything in heaven or on earth more than God, he, has, he will not keep the first commandment or any other commandment. He's saying... They're all linked together. You can't break any commandment in the Bible without first breaking the first commandment of not putting any other... Like The reason why you lie breaking the ninth commandment is because you have elevated something in your heart. Something in your heart is more important than God, whether it's the affirmation of the person that you're lying to or the thing that you are lying to try to get, whatever it is, you have loved something else more than God and determined that you'd rather lie and break God's other law to get that thing. Right? When you, you can't break any other commandment without first breaking the first commandment of worshiping God over and above anything and everything else. So in Psalm 96, it says that other gods are worthless... What he's saying is, don't worship other gods and then let, right, don't, don't love other things more than you love Jesus and then let that misplaced affection give birth to a misplaced behavior. Instead, worship the one true God who's the rightful possessor of all honor and glory and, and worship. So, two commands, worship the Lord and proclaim the glory of the Lord, right? Vertical and horizontal. Three reasons why. One is uh, because God is glorious. Two is because no other gods besides God are glorious. They're all worthless. And then finally, the last verse, because God is coming to judge the world. Look at verse 13. Before the Lord he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. God is going to come back. God is going to judge the world and everything in it. Every single person that God has created is going to stand before him and give an account to him for their life and how they lived it. And whether they worshipped him and obeyed him as he deserves or whether they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped created things in place of God. God is righteous. God is just. Everyone who worships and honors and obeys God and proclaims God's glory will be judged accordingly, welcomed into God's kingdom to enjoy His presence for all of eternity. Everyone who refuses to worship God, everyone who worships other things instead of God will be, work, will be judged accordingly, and they'll be cast out of God's presence to experience punishment and wrath. 
That's an inevitability. That's something that is going to happen. God will return. You will stand before Him. You will give an account to Him. You will either be commended by God for your righteousness and obedience, or you'll be condemned by God for your rebellion and rejection. The catch is, when we stand before God to give an account for how we worshipped Him and how we proclaimed the glory and fame of God to the world, none of us will be found worthy. None of us will be commended for our righteousness and obedience. It is an inevitable, it is a, a stone-cold fact that you, when you stand before God, you will be condemned for your sin and your rebellion. You'll be condemned for worshiping other gods instead of God. You'll be condemned to eternal separation apart from God. That's your fate. That's my fate. That's the fate of every single person who has ever lived. It's completely and totally unavoidable outside of the person and work of Jesus. God is in heaven. God, by virtue of His righteousness, is committed to judging and punishing rebels, which means that God is obligated to punish every person who has ever lived. But God, despite hating sin, God happens to love sinners so much that He wasn't willing to let that happen. So He became a person. He left His throne. He came here among us. Jesus Christ worshipped God exactly as Psalm 96 instructs us to. Jesus Christ proclaimed and declared the glory of God exactly the way that Psalm 96 commands us to. Jesus was the only person who has ever lived and fulfilled the, and, the, and obeyed the law of God perfectly. Therefore, Jesus is the only person who deserved to be commended by God and welcomed into the presence of God, and yet Jesus was condemned by God. Jesus, after living a perfect life, died a sinner's death. Condemned as a criminal, crucified, punished by God, absorbing the wrath of God, and now because of Jesus' death on the cross and Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we have been invited into the presence of God. Not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness. So the worship that we read about in Psalm 96 is not something that we do to earn God's favor, so that he will welcome us into his presence. It's something that we do in response to having been given God's favor and having already been invited into his presence through the person and work of Christ. Worship is not something we do proactively so that God will love us. It's something that we do as a response in light of the reality that God already does love us. We worship God with what we think and what we feel and what we do. We declare the glory of God to believers as we lean into the church and to unbelievers as we engage with the world and share the gospel with them because God is glorious, because all other gods are worthless, because God himself is coming back to judge the world in righteousness. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to worship you.
in accordance with your glory and your majesty. We pray that you would help us to declare the glory of God to those around us. Lord, we pray that we could declare the gospel to our church as we disciple and encourage one another. We pray that we could declare the gospel to the world as we love them and share the gospel with them. Lord, we pray that you would help us to behold your glory and to respond rightly to it by trusting you and obeying you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.